0: Funding v. New York Attorney General uh, and uh, New York Attorney General v. U.S. Bank National Association at L. 23659. And counsel, just hold on for a second.
1: Good morning, Your Honor. I'm Patrick Broderick uh, for the um, defendant-appellant, U.S. Bank National Association, as trustee. Hold,
0: hold on a second. All
1: right. Good. Uh, we bring this appeal because we believe that the district court erred for three principal reasons. First, we think that uh, that the uh, Foreclosure Abuse Prevention Act, abbreviated FAPA, enacted by the New York legislature at the end of 2022. Does, that the Section 8 of that act does not apply retroactively, and for that reason, the discontinuances of the prior foreclosure actions operated to reset the statute of limitations. We also believe that district report erred in its analysis of our argument that if it is applied retroactively, it runs afoul of the Contracts Clause. We also think it runs afoul of other constitutional protections afforded to my client. And third, we think the District Court erred because uh, it found that even under the law prior to the enactment of the foreclosure abuse prevention act that this uh, mortgage loan would have been time barred because the discontinuances were not effective. We think that the first argument is the only argument this court need reach in order to reverse the district court. So I'm
2: interested in that argument but can I just say um, something that's puzzling which is this debate over whether the statute of limitations uh, has been extended or not extended. Uh, assumes that well if you brought a foreclosure action today would it be time barred or not time barred and that would determine whether East Fork is entitled to quiet title but you have brought a foreclosure action and you in fact obtained a judgment of foreclosure so why isn't the argument that it's all res judicata and you've already enforced the mortgage and obtained a judgment and uh, for a federal court to issue a judgment that conflicts with that judgment you know, would violate laws of preclusion or rules of preclusion.
1: Uh, we agree with that, Your Honor. Uh, unfortunately, the district court opinion didn't address that point other than in a footnote and in passing. And it's not clear from the record. Yeah, did you
2: make that argument before the district court?
1: I'm not sure that it was made, Your Honor. I can't yeah. say for certain the district court order did not think it was I mean, you made. You do
2: say on appeal that you think that the foreclosure judgment is binding on East Fork. So it does seem like your, your position is that it's binding. That's right, Your Honor. Right. We think it's there an is issue. There is that footnote in the district court opinion that says the parties agree that the 2016 judgment has no effect on these proceedings or something like that? Yeah, I wasn't What's at the district
1: court, and I didn't get the, we don't have the transcript of exactly what so transpired. we don't even know
2: what that means when the district court says that. Correct. Right. But and, so, uh, just to clarify your position, you don't think it's accurate that the 2016 judgment doesn't affect. The
1: no, we think, it, we think it does affect, and we think that in this case, it would be reversed. That should be sorted out at the district court level with a full record what on be that issue. Out? I'm sorry?
2: What should be sorted out?
1: The issue of whether or not the 2016 judgment precludes the case brought by East Fork, whether it's binding on them or not. And so we think that if the reversal of the district court, the federal district court decision here, would return this case back to the district court where that issue that we're discussing now would be decided. but But if that
3: if that issue was not raised in the district court it's really hard to say that the district court erred in failing to consider it correct
1: that's correct and again i don't have the transcript of what transpired at the oral argument that's Um, the point that's the point yeah that's
3: why if
0: we were to send this back then you might be able to
1: that's right then we would flesh this out and decide these uh like the impact of that judgment
0: so but so so just Does that mean that that is a
2: ground for sending it back? Because the district court should have considered the res judicata effect of that judgment, and it was a mistake to say it has no effect? Or should we say that you didn't, it wasn't adequately?
1: Well, I think it is a ground. I think it is a ground because it is mentioned by the district court order. And, in fact, uh, my adversary spends a lot of pages discussing the backdrop of the state court proceedings and whether his client was on notice of the judgment. Do you agree
2: that that would just resolve the whole case, right? Because regardless of whether FAPA applies retroactively or not retroactively or the statute of limitations was extended or not, there's a judgment from a state court of foreclosure, right? That's correct.
1: That's correct. And it would impact these proceedings for certain.
2: Okay. Can I ask again about your point about FAPA not being retroactive? It does seem like your position is that it is retroactive to some extent, right? You wouldn't deny that if there were a pending foreclosure action right now, that were voluntarily discontinued, uh, that would not be a, that would not, you know, uh, prompt a deacceleration of the loan, right? And that's retroactive in a sense because it applies to actions that were commenced before FAPA, and it applies to mortgages that were signed before FAPA, and so on. So that's a kind of retroactivity. But your position is that it's not extra retroactive, in that it shouldn't apply to. Uh, voluntary disclosures that happened way in the past that are now closed and uh, proceedings that are ended. Right? That, that's, that's, correct. So that, that's correct. So You're not actually saying there's no retroactivity. You're just saying that the language of it applies to only pending cases that are still
3: open. Let me ask you about that. In, in your view, is it, is it retroactive in that it applies to um, notes that were executed prior to the effective date of FAPA? Well, again, I'm talking about Section 8 here,
1: which is... Yeah, I'm yeah.
3: asking, all right, Section 8. So
1: under Section 8, they omit Do, the, the words prior act. So we would say that it applies...
3: Would it, would it apply, the, Section 8 apply, to a note that was executed prior to the passage of FAPA? I agree that it does. We okay. also think there's constitutional Do, issues with that, but yes. And, and so let's say the day before FAPA is, is signed... Um, and executed to, into law, enacted into law, there is a note that is, um, is taken out. Your, your view is that that would violate the contract clause to apply FAPA to that note? No other action taken. No, no, um, no foreclosure action, no failure to pay. It's just the background law has changed. In that In your view, that violates the contract clause? It does, it does, and here's why. The mortgage allows
1: lenders to to elect to accelerate a mortgage loan, to call it all due under paragraph 22. It has been the law in New York for a very long time that that same provision, because it's elective, allows that same lender to revoke its acceleration. That has been the law. So under the hypothetical that Your Honor presented, if someone entered into a mortgage no contract before FAPA was enacted, and in that contract, New York law applies to paragraph 16 of the mortgage year. New York law applies. I would argue that I mean, VAPA being enacted after that then takes away I, impairs the contract I, right.
3: I, I've read, obviously, carefully, your brief and the brief of your amicade, says it's been the year, law for hundreds of years, and then cites a district court opinion that cites something like eight or ten state Supreme Court decisions, the lowest court all from 2017 in support of the proposition that it's been the law for hundreds of years. Is that the proposition that you're, you're standing behind? The proposition that we're standing behind is the discussion of the state
1: of the law by the experts in New York law, and those experts on the New York Court of Appeals. The, the, and The, 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 the New York thinks. Court of
3: Appeals, which said in Engel, um, our court has never considered this issue. Well, they said what the state of the law was,
1: because the state of the law was prior. Well, the to the New York what Court
2: of Appeals in Engel says that we haven't resolved the issue, but there was disagreement in, among the state courts, right?
1: There was emergent so, so, so disagreement. That, so that's, yeah. that's
2: kind of it's kind of uncertain. Although probably the New York Court of Appeals would say that their decision was consistent or more consistent with the existing law than an alternative. But I guess it's not disputed that there is a principle that an affirmative act by the lender um, to uh, Decelerate, even if it's unilateral, even as a unilateral act, if it's an affirmative act by the lender to deaccelerate, it would have the effect of deaccelerating the loan, right? Yes. So the question and angle was just whether the voluntary discontinuance was an affirmative act.
1: That's correct. So we know that there
2: is some class of unilateral actions by the lender that have always been recognized as deaccelerating the loan. Correct. So FAPA applies not just to a voluntary discontinuance, but any unilateral action by the lender, right?
1: The Section Four of FAPA does Section Four does right.
2: So yes. if SAPA applies retroactively, or, or applies to the way I was describing retroactively, applies to uh, past actions that have already been concluded, then it would change the rights of a lender that were recognized, you know, consensus like even under New York law, right? Correct. So I guess. So I guess the the hypothetical is is this. So if ten years ago. Um, uh, the lender took some unilateral action to deaccelerate a loan, and everybody understood that that deaccelerated the loan, and the borrower started making payments and so on. Uh, once FAPA was passed, it would mean that the borrower could just stop making payments because there would be no way for the lender to collect on the loan, right? Because Ten years is more than six years. Well, there's an
1: argument that if you've been making payments and you've continued along. and, and
2: So you think, you think that, that, that making payments by the by the borrower would be an agreement that it should be deaccelerated? Why wouldn't it just reflect an agreement that the default rule of New York law is that the lender is allowed to unilaterally deaccelerate the loan and they thought that they would have to pay?
1: Yeah, I think that the making of payments ratifies the agreement, and I think that another foreclosure action okay, so that's so not
2: a problem so, so there's
0: so there's actually no issue with the enforceability of the contract that's not a problem so what what is the contracts clause issue
1: the contracts clause issue is that under existing new york law a lender was able to revoke its acceleration of the loan that's not enforced that's not
0: that that so as I understand and I've you know been on panels have been about the contracts clause that doesn't go to the fundamental ability to enforce a contract. That, that goes to, to different other issues. What, how does this go to the fundamental enforceability of these contracts? Well,
1: the W.B. Worthen case, the United States Supreme Court case from 1935, involved, and that in the context of the Great Depression, Arkansas passing laws to help borrowers. They extended out how you could foreclose and stretched out how much time you had to answer the complaint. That sort of thing, and it, what it was found is by the United States Supreme Court was look. There's a remedial purpose behind your legislation. We get it. However, you've impaired the value of somebody's collateral. And the United States Supreme Court in that case found that just delaying the ability to bring a foreclosure was an impairment of the contracts and so the contract. This,
3: this, this statute doesn't delay the ability of somebody to bring a claim. Let's let's say that uh, the New York State Legislature um, enacted, shortened the statute of limitations, said um, statute of limitations is now only one year. Um, in your view, does that impair the obligation of contract? Yes, it would. And I think so, that- So in your view, what, what about if the New York State Legislature extended the statute of limitations? For um, the lender to bring an action, could the borrower then bring a contract clause claim and say, it's only the old statute of limitations that applies because we fix it in time?" Well, we've cited the case. What's law. the answer to that?
1: Well, the answer to that is, yeah, a borrower would have an argument because they're a, 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 a so defunct in, in, in,
3: in your view, a court applying the statute of limitations to a contract action has to look to what the statute of limitations was at the time of contracting? I'm saying that you cannot alter
1: and end the ability of a borrower to bring an action entirely, which is what this case
3: brings. That That may raise a due process issue, but how does that raise a question with respect to the expectations at the time of contracting?
1: Because at the time of contracting, the parties in this case believe that New York law applied. They agreed to, in paragraph well, 16... Just to be more
2: precise, you're saying that at the time that they executed the contract, the parties understood that the lender would have the right to unilaterally deaccelerate the loan either by voluntary discontinuance or some other means. And so that was the understanding when they agreed to all the terms of the contract. And in fact, maybe if they didn't understand that, they'd write it explicitly into the contract. But they didn't need to because that was the rule of New York law. And now, the it's not just that the Lender doesn't have the right to deaccelerate the loan. It's also that the lender deaccelerated the loan on two prior occasions, uh, understanding that that didn't, that that, that reset the statute of limitations. And now the lender's in a position where it can't enforce its contract at all, right? So the that's right. It's a complete, impair- it's not even imperative. impairment, it's, it's destruction of
1: right. so, the contract. Uh, so
2: just to go back to my earlier hypothetical about whether the borrower making payments would be in agreement. So, in this case, the district court actually says the record doesn't tell us whether the owners here, the droves, started making payments again after the voluntary discontinuance. It sounds like you're saying that that actually would make a huge difference as to, as to uh, whether it was an effect, even if, if, assuming that FAP was retroactive or whatever, that it would make a huge difference as to whether they made payments or not.
1: Well, I think it does because FAP is talking in terms of unilateral. Right, so, but
2: you're saying that making the payments would make it not unilateral. But we don't know whether there were payments made after the voluntary discontinuances here.
1: Well, I don't think there were because, the, again, the borrowers didn't appear in any of the foreclosure actions. So the borrowers have been out of the picture here for a very long time. And I think the reason that we got a foreclosure judgment in the state court is because there hadn't been any payments since two, the end of 2009, so you think
2: that we can assume that after the voluntary discontinuances, there weren't any further payments? Uh, there were not any. But you okay. think that that would make it not unilateral?
1: Well, I, I it would make it not unilateral.
2: So that would make so if the if the lender discontinues an action unilaterally, but then the borrower starts making payments again as if it has been deaccelerated, you would think that that was enough to say to get out of. FAPA, that the voluntary discontinuance would restart the statute of limitations because the borrower had effectively agreed to that.
1: I think that's right. I think, I think FAPA so, contemplates so this,
2: that. So the problem here only applies to those the class where the borrower says, no, I want to accelerate the loan and make all the payments right now, or the borrower somehow avoids collection for six years.
1: Yeah, the situation here is the borrower hasn't made a payment since 2009. Can I,
2: okay, can,
0: can, just, can I... Okay. okay. Is this the same line? Of the it's slightly different, so I'll wait until you, if you'd like to. Yeah. Well, let me just go back to the Ms. Judicata point because I realize I may have misunderstood something you said. What is it that you believe um, is the subject of uh, Ms. Judicata?
1: We believe that the, the judgment of my client against the borrowers in the 2016 foreclosure
3: action. Is that the third foreclosure action? Correct.
1: Okay. We think that's res judicata on so, so um, the, the one so that, me, the one that you, happened after
3: this case was initiated. Yeah.
0: So let me, let me ask you about that because the district court states that, quote, at the oral argument, the parties also explained that the defendant filed a third foreclosure action against the borrowers in 2016. This one. Before the plaintiff acquired the property, the parties agreed that it has no effect on the instant summary judgment motions.
1: Is that Yeah, again, that I wasn't at the district court, so I, I don't have no, the No, I transfer. know that, yeah. but
0: that is not, you know, I've been at that podium, um, and I just took responsibility for whatever happened when I was the lawyer uh, in front of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. So we are where we are, and I appreciate you. You know, you're trying to do
1: your, your job. But is that is that accurate? I have no basis for saying it's not accurate. But so, yeah. so if that's
0: if that's the case then how in the world can you say that it could go back to the district court to relitigate an issue where you've already said or you the parties agreed that
1: uh, this issue has no effect on the summary judgment motion well because we're appealing the district court's order and so whether but you've
0: already you've waived that you seem to have waived this argument
1: we did not make a big deal of this argument in no, our no, briefs. That's it's for sure.
0: not a big deal. You waived the argument. She says, without any objection, apparently the parties agreed that has no effect on the instant summary judgment motions.
1: We're bound by that, Your Honor. Okay,
2: okay. Okay. So, but can I just ask what that means? So, the proceedings before the district court, before FAPA was adopted, were about whether the mortgage was valid, right, or could be enforced. So the initial summary judgment briefing by the parties was about whether the judgment of foreclosure from the state court was binding on East Fork and so on. That's right. So in terms of the initial set of summary judgment motions, there would be no way to say that the 2016 proceeding had no effect on the summary judgment motion. So when the district court says in this footnote here, the parties agree that it has no – sorry – the parties also explained that the defendant filed a third foreclosure action against the borrowers in 2016 before the plaintiff acquired the property. The parties agree that it has no effect on the instant summary judgment motions. What it's saying is on um, those motions that are focused on the retroactivity of FAPA and so on, the 2016 judgment doesn't tell you, answer that question one way or the other. That's correct. But in terms of larger so concerns so we, about what, whether, so whether, so the, whether the judgment, whether so what the what earlier is, action was is, binding. Excuse me for one second. What I is, haven't finished
0: my What, it, what, what sure. is, go
2: ahead. So break. on the larger question about whether the 2016 uh, judgment was binding, in fact, the parties had debated that question, and that was before the district court. And so the only way to understand this footnote is just that the district court was deciding the narrow question of, FAPA's applicability and validity, and it didn't think that the 2016 judgment answered that question. But that doesn't mean that there are other issues in the case. That's right, because the
1: district court asked for additional briefing on FAPA because FAPA was brand new. The parties submitted briefs, and the judge issued his decision on FAPA apart do from Do you the know vote. what
0: the counsel's representation was? I, I gather you may not because you're not there, uh, relating to um, uh, this
1: foreclosure action. I do not, Your Honor. Okay. So
0: can
2: I ask a question? You you know, we're talking about the contracts clause and whether there'd be a violation of the contracts clause, but your primary argument is not that the FAPA is necessarily unconstitutional, but just on its face, uh, the statutory text doesn't require changing the effect of a voluntary discontinuance that has happened in the past in an action that has concluded, right?
1: Yeah, we think that if you compare Section 7 with Section 8 in FAPA, Section... Right, so
2: the argument is that Section 8 says the voluntary discontinuance shall not waive, cancel, or whatever, We set the statute of limitations. And so it says shall not, and so that's perspective. And section 10 says this act shall take effect immediately and shall apply to all actions commenced in which a final judgment of foreclosure and sale has not been enforced. And you're saying, well, that means that if you have a current action now uh, where there's a pending action, then the voluntary discontinuance of that wouldn't count. And that's a kind of retroactivity, as I've said before. But if the action is no longer pending, if it happened 10 years ago or something. If it's a prior action. It's a prior yeah. action as opposed to a pending action. You're saying the statute just doesn't reach that. That's right. Especially so these arguments they use the about inter- the constitutionality might be a reason why that interpretation might be favored. But you think that that's just the best reading of the statutory text, right? Exactly.
1: Because if you compare Section 7 and Section 8, Section 7 does use the term prior action. And then they, they omit that phrase in Section 8.
3: So aren't we obligated to apply the state rules of uh, statutory interpretation here? Yes. And if I were to look at the state rules interpretation, one of the cases I would look at was the Valentine case, correct?
1: That would be one of them, yes.
3: Okay. In in Valentine... Um, Doesn't the court look to how quickly the statute is passed, whether it is in reaction to a judicial decision, um, whether it uses the language of effective immediately, all of those factors and says that the statute is retroactive, correct?
1: Uh, Some of those factors would, yes, yes, that's right.
3: Okay. Some of those
2: factors would, but the district court, the state courts do say that there needs to be a clear statement by the legislature about retroactivity, right? That's exactly right. That's, and you're that's, that's, actually honoring uh, the statement about retroactivity. As I said, I mean, it does seem to me you, the position you're taking would be retroactive application. For well, section actually, side. I don't know, actually. There's some confusion, because in response to Judge Lyman, you said maybe it wouldn't apply to a mortgage that was negotiated before FAPA. So maybe I want to clarify what your position is. So, there's two available positions. There's two one arguments. Yeah. That it doesn't apply retroactively at all. And therefore, any mortgage instrument that was negotiated and signed before FAPA was passed, FAPA wouldn't apply to that. Another possible understanding of Section 10, which I think is the one that you were just advancing, is that it applies to all actions that are pending. And so, therefore, if there is a pending action, in that action, a voluntary discontinuance, even if it's on a mortgage that had been negotiated prior to FAPA, would not have the effect of deaccelerating the loan but for those actions that are in the past and have been concluded and are no longer pending the prior actions as you just said it would not apply is that right
1: yeah i think there's two issues one is does the statute apply at all retroactively the second issue is if it does apply if it does or doesn't is it constitutional and so I think no, we're making... I'm not
2: asking about whether it's constitutional. Okay. I'm asking about the extent of the retroactivity. Yeah, the, I think the so, retroactivity... So, right, so my understanding of your position, which you know I would like to clarify, is that sec- what Section 10 says is that if there is a pending action right now, or like on the day that FAPA is passed, even if it's concerning a mortgage that was signed before FAPA was passed, if that action is voluntarily discontinued, it would not have the effect of deaccelerating the loan.
1: That would be how FAPA reads. That right. We so, think FAPA right. would so, apply to that,
2: yes. And, and if that's the rule, you would still prevail because your case was not pending on the day that FAPA
1: was Correct. And these were years ago,
2: yeah. So maybe there's some constitutional questions about whether you could apply it to that kind of action, but it wouldn't really be relevant here because at least it wouldn't apply, right?
1: That's right. That's right. All right.
0: We'll hear from your friends on the other side. Mr. Falosa.
4: Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, Anthony Falosa, Rosenberg fortuna Latman, on behalf of Applee, East Fork Funding LLC. Uh, just want to address since the, the court focused its attention during my colleagues' presentation on the on the retroactivity of, of FAPA, The court need look a little further than Section 10 of of FAPA. These these guideposts that the bank rely on, these maxims of statutory interpretation about whether shall connotes prospectivity or retroactivity, are on, on the totem pole of statutory construction the lowest rung. This court has acknowledged, the New York Court of Appeals has acknowledged, that the first stop of statutory construction is the text of the statute itself. We submit that Section 10 permits no other reasonable interpretation, Section 10 states that FAPA shall apply to all actions on which a judgment of foreclosure and sale has not been enforced. So it would be it would be nonsensical or superfluous to interpret that language prospective only because there would be no prospective case there would be no case in that procedural posture there would have been no need for the for the legislature Well, well
2: why not? So if it applies to, so if in fact I bring a action for foreclosure and then subsequent to my bringing that action FAPA is passed, there is a question as to whether FAPA would apply because all the conduct that's at issue in that case uh, occurred prior to the passage of FAPA. So if you applied FAPA to that pending action, that would be a kind of retroactivity, right? Well, and then I guess, I mean, it's just, just intuitively, isn't there a difference between these two possibilities? So one possibility is it applies to pending cases. And so that means that if a lender Deaccelerates accelerates a loan after the passage of FAPA, or sorry, voluntarily discontinues the foreclosure action after the passage of FAPA, they'd know what they're doing. They'd know that the effect would not, have, would not to be to deaccelerate the loan if they voluntarily discontinue. But isn't that different from applying it to actions that are in way in the past and have concluded, and so if the lender dis- voluntarily discontinued something 10 years ago on the understanding that it deaccelerated the loan, now you're just changing the effect of a judgment that had been entered and a proceeding that had been concluded.
4: Right, right but I guess the, the, the potential harsh effects, if I understand Your, your Honor's analogy uh, correctly, the potential harsh effects of retroactive statute is not a not a cause under New York law to not apply a statute retroactively where the legislature has made it plain and clear that they yeah, intended I mean, for the statute I mean, to Basically,
3: what, what Judge is, is is saying is that the um, action currently taken would have no prospective uh, uh, effect. Your your point is that the statute is, as drafted, is intended to have a retroactive effect. Correct. So,
4: Both as a matter of text, and then I guess on the next rung of statutory construction, the legislative history and the and the matter of Gleason factors. Again, FABA was enacted. With a sense of urgency to address. Oh, but sorry, the you said
2: the text was the most important thing, so I just want to focus on the text, right? So why doesn't it give complete effect to this text? Section 10 says this act shall take effect immediately and shall apply to all actions commenced on a mortgage in which there hasn't been a final judgment of foreclosure, right? Correct. Okay, so FAPA applies to any pending action that's open now, right? That's a kind of retroactive application. Uh, section 8 says the voluntary discontinuance shall not extend the statute limitations. So if that pending action is voluntarily discontinued, it does not uh, extend the statute of limitations, right? And so everybody understands that that's the rule that would apply. I can give total effect to this language without saying, but an action that was voluntarily discontinued in 2011 and that everybody has, that when, where the case was closed and ended, you know, that's done, that's res judicata, it's like settled and so on, and this language doesn't apply to that. Right, look. Right, so like, I don't understand why. I mean, I, I get your arguments, you're going to make arguments about why it should apply to reopen the action from 2011, but this language doesn't require that conclusion,
4: does it? I, we would respectfully disagree again because. Explain
2: to me why? Why does this entail that that result?
4: Well, because I guess that's a fairly securitous way of the legislature of saying. So what Your Honor is essentially saying is that this this act is intended to apply to actions commenced on or after the effective date. Well, that, that would, no, would have been I'm a not very easy. That.
2: Actions pending on the effective date, right? Well, actions that have been commenced but haven't been concluded.
4: So they, Your Your Honor just applied the language that had the legislature intended that it would have been a, a much less securitous way of sending it if they could have just said actions pending on this date. Now, that would have connoted prospectivity without doubt so again i think as a matter of text and an even yeah, but, we, but,
2: but pending actions on the effective date is language about retroactivity so apply, applying a new statute to a case that's pending on its effective date that's applying it retroactively so like i said before mm-hmm. it seems to me we're debating the extent of the retroactivity not really whether it's retroactive
4: i think turning to the even to the matter of leasing factors again to the extent we submit section 10 itself is clear when you examine this in the context of the legislative history of passing the immediate wake of Angle, the sponsor's memorandum, which under New York law is entitled to substantial deference with respect to the intent of the legislature, says essentially Angle was wrong the minute it was decided. It did not accurately reflect New York law that in creating a so-called mortgage banker's obsession to the statute of limitations. So in conveying a sense of urgency in passing, passing this in the immediate wake of Angle and explaining that... This is remedial legislation merely intending to clarify what pre-existing statutes already say, that the six-year statute of limitations means six years. That's CPLR 201, which has been on the book since 1962, says that no court shall extend the statute of limitations, which is what the effect of the Engel decision had, was interpreting a stipulation of discontinuance. Yeah, but now you're saying... And, that and in fact, Engel. I
3: mean, doesn't General Obligation Law 17-105 uh, actually provide, it provided a remedy for... The lender, in in this instance, had it wanted to Correct. have that's, a secure way.
4: That's one of the statutes again that, that has been on the books since 1961, and that so, was. So now you're
2: saying that Engel was just wrongly decided, right? And you're that saying, was you're the, saying that Engel conflicted with New York law. But when we decide questions of state law, we're supposed to predict what the highest court of the state would say about state law. I mean, would the New York Court of Appeals say that Engel was inconsistent with all the laws of New York State at the time
4: it was decided? I mean, mean, respectfully, I believe the legislature is entitled, I guess, the great office of statutes, to to quote the the, the United States Supreme Court, the great office of statutes is to correct defects in the common law. It's not uncommon for a legislature to enact in the immediate wake of a decision of a high court that they believe does not accurately reflect New York law to cure that defect, and that's exactly what they did here with Engel. Again, addressing Judge Lyman's comment, yes, GOL 17105 is one of the statutes clarified that was on the book since 1961, that essentially provides the exclusive means for contracting parties to extend the statute of limitations. So under those matter of Gleason's factors, to the extent that the court even believes that section 10 is susceptible to doubt, we would submit that under those those canons that FAB has intended to apply retroactively and lo lo and behold the- the, Can I just
2: ask about the implications of that? So if in fact, there was some kind of unilateral action by the lender that happened eight years ago or eight years before right. uh, before the passage of FAPA and everybody thought that that voluntarily discontinued or that deaccelerated the loan. The lender now is just, whereas previously the lender might have been subject to foreclosure and now the lender just owns the property free and clear.
3: Okay, you you, you yeah, must you be the, the borrower, not the other. Oh, sorry, you know the
2: borrower. borrower. Sorry, the yes. borrower. Excuse me. If the lender took some action more than six years ago, before the passage of FAPA, to unilaterally deaccelerate the loan, and everybody thought that that's what happened, and we have court cases in which courts say that that is what happened, I understand that you said there's disagreement on that, but there are at least some cases that, in which that's what people understood. Uh, whereas before the passage of FAPA, that... Uh, Borrower was subject to foreclosure after the passage of FAPA, that person could just stop making payments because there's no way for the lender to foreclose, right?
4: Well, again, but I just want to, just want to understand your honest question. I mean, it, that seems to be like a result oriented way of interpreting statutes, which, is, again, I'm our, not even we're, saying we're, so we I'm, seem I'm, to be so questioning I'm, the wisdom of, of the legislature here.
2: No, I'm questioning whether your interpretation is required by the text, and one of the things we consider is constitutional avoidance when we're deciding what the proper interpretation of a text is. But I'm not even asking you to make a conclusion from this. I'm just asking, is that true? Is that what your interpretation would entail?
4: That a pre-FAPA so-called revocation or pre-FAPA discontinuance is ineffective to reset the statute of limitations in a post-FAPA world? Absolutely yes. So that
2: that means that there could have been some kind of action that everybody understood eight years ago uh, to de-accelerate the loan and uh, now, whereas previously the lender could have foreclosed, now the lender has no rights to the property. So FAPA had the effect of just transferring ownership of property from some class of Lenders to the borrowers. Not at
4: all. No. Not so, at all. Again, well, why is that? Again, FAPA does not create new consequences for past conduct because, again, as a legislature found, it merely. Me least, there's there's one, let me ask you
3: this, of- this question. Um, the um, FAPA is amends the CPLR. Correct. Um, the CPLR, I, I had always understood to be governing the courts of New York. It affects a statute of limitations. Statutes of limitations are procedural, they're considered not to be substantive. Um, do you do you have a view as to whether if a lender brought suit against a borrower in a state other than New York, FAPA would be enforceable, um, would be applied by that court? I mean, ordinarily, courts of other states don't apply the stat- procedural statutes of limitations of of, of New York. That's
4: correct. Yes. And I think as a matter of procedure, this is confined to, to New York State law. New York State court would be applying the New York State statute of limitations as interpreted by FAPA.
3: So if if um, a lender wanted to sue a borrower and could get jurisdiction in Connecticut or New Jersey or some other uh, other place um, would these provisions apply, or would that be a matter for those courts to then
4: determine? Well, I guess under an eerie analysis, again, it turns on whether uh, leave, it's leave
3: aside the federal court bid. I'm asking state
4: court. Right. It would seem that they would apply the, the law of the procedure of the forum in that instance, Your Honor. OK, okay thank right. you.
2: So can I ask about that Res Judicata question? So, uh, so just putting aside the whole debate over FAPA, even if we assume that the voluntary discontinuance in 2011 did not deaccelerate the loan. Uh, U.S. Bank, in fact, brought a foreclosure action uh, and obtained a foreclosure judgment within six years of of that of that action. So, uh, so there's, and, and even if it even if it hadn't been within six years, I mean, the fact is that there is a state court judgment that says that the mortgage is enforceable and they have a judgment of foreclosure and if you prevail in this case we're basically eviscerating that judgment so why don't preclusion principles apply to say well this has been litigated already and we have to honor the prior judgment
4: again it bears emphasis that the 2016 action that the bank commenced was not against East Forks property. Does it doesn't matter. You're in privity with the the. No, no, no. It's, that's not a question. No, it's not a matter of privity. The, for, the 2016 complaint and sworn declarations submitted in the 2016 action by the bank sought foreclosure against Unit 7H, which is not East Forks property, and I guess this yeah, case is a microcosm of the- state, Excuse
2: the, me, counsel, but the State Court you know, granted a motion to say, well, that was an error and actually it is against this property. I understand you have arguments for why the state court shouldn't have done that. Right. But don't we respect the earlier judgment of a separate court that decided it differently than you would like? No. I mean, shouldn't your recourse be to go to that court and say you were wrong to do this? In fact,
3: Rooker Feldman does apply, right, in this instance, because. It, you're not appealing a state court judgment. State court judgment didn't precede your action. Your action was um, first. Well, of course rucker doesn't first. apply. I mean, Correct. rucker doesn't apply, does apply
4: because under ExxonMobil, uh, our action, the federal court action, was commenced before the entry of any judgment of foreclosure which purported to affect no, our I, property. I, I
2: never mentioned Rucker-Fellman. That's, that's Rooker-Fellman. But I think the chronology, no, think the chronology is said, important said, here in the gamesmanship is so important. So there was a state court judgment that was issued before the judgment in this case. Why isn't the federal court required to respect a prior judgment on the same, on the same issue between the parties?
4: Because the bank sought in sworn declarations and obtained a judgment of foreclosure against Unit 7H, which is not East Fork's property. So we have no quarrel with them foreclosing against Unit 7H in 2019. So here the chronology is very important. So from 16 to 19, and critically, prior to our if i may, court, prior to our acquisition me, of the deed counsel,
2: but the district, but the state court then grants the motion to correct the judgment to say it applies to this property in February 2020
4: so but that you don't, so, you don't
2: have a ju- you don't have a judgment in the federal court at that point we, so there is a state court judgment that says the US bank has a judgment of foreclosure against this property that's a subject to the federal court
4: action so, so for you have a for four distinct reasons we are not bound by the amended non pro tunc. JFS and the State Court action. I'd
0: like to hear the four reasons.
4: Right, so it violates East Fork's due process because again we commenced this action in 2020. At all times prior to 2020 U.S. Bank and the State Court maintained in sworn declarations that the mortgage was intended to encumber and the action was intended to foreclose Unit 7H, which is not East Fork's property. Citations to the record at Appendix 1382 to 1385. They sought reformation of the mortgage in their 2016 complaint to foreclose and to describe Unit 7H. That's at Paragraphs 22 to 24, 28, 30 and 33. They sought indexing of the mortgage to be recorded against Unit 7H. That's again at Appendix 1382 to 1385. They filed a notice of pendency in that third foreclosure action, not against East Forks property, against Unit 7H. We are not joined to the third foreclosure action. East Fork has never made a party to that action. Lo and behold, in 2020, we commenced the quiet title action. Two years later, the bank goes back to the state court without notice to the federal court, without notice to East Fork, makes a motion to nunc pro tunc amend the judgment to now cover East Fork's property without notice to East Fork. So as a matter of due process, how could you have a judgment that purports to foreclose East Fork's property without giving okay, them so notice so and an opportunity so to be heard. Second, that, if I may, well, so from a matter of due process, of this argument okay. is The
3: answer
4: to question. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll defer the to the, to the chief.
2: Uh, you can go through all the four reasons. Okay. Let me just ask a question about that reason. So you're you're saying that we should conclude that the state court judgment was invalid, right? But if it were if it were a valid judgment, there would be a res judicata effect, right?
4: Well, but that, that simply beg, your honor's hypothetical begs the question. Had we had notice and the opportunity to be heard and we lost... Okay, no, I get I'm just
2: trying to get... Yes, the, as an elementary so matter, we would be bound by
4: that. Very quickly, the remaining free. Sure, so uh, as a matter of state law, a court lacks subject matter jurisdiction post-judgment to make a substantive amendment to the judgment. And we brief this matter. It's Wells Fargo v. Pedeswick, 115, Appellate Division 3rd, 207. Okay. It's a 2014 case. Once you've entered a judgment in state court... The court's ability to affect that judgment is really relegated to ministerial or clerical errors. You cannot take a judgment of foreclosure which purports to foreclose against Unit 7H and then after the fact okay. say no, it's foreclosing another what, person's what property. Other, what are the
0: other reasons?
4: Frankly, that the, the, the gamesmanship employed, employed here by the bank is extrinsic fraud. We had, a, we had a 2020 action where we were actively litigating the validity of the mortgage before the district court for them to go under the cover of darkness, if you will, without notifying the federal court, without notifying East Fork, when we were actively litigating the action in district court to move essentially ex parte in the in the state court to amend the judgment non pro tonc is procuring, without notifying the state court of the pendency of the federal court action, is extrinsic fraud on that court.
0: To- also explained you heard you heard that
4: right i I, I conducted the proceedings before the district court i argued the motion before judge donnelly on the district court it bears emphasis briefing had closed prior to fapa so we actively litigated these issues with respect to the the efficacy of the amended judgment Mm -hmm. before the district court summary judgment was fully briefed decision was still pending fapa is passed december 30th of 2022 We all sought leave of the court to supplement our briefing to address the applicability of FAPA. The court granted that relief. We argued the motion March of 2023. And for whatever reason, the bank charted its litigation course. The transcript will reflect that the discussion, the arguments advanced by the bank, and which we had to oppose, was the constitutionality of FAPA and the applicability of FAPA to this action. So that footnote in Her Honor's decision is completely accurate. They abandoned any argument with respect to res judicata, with respect to the amended JFS.
2: But the whole summary judgment briefing that you're saying had been closed was about whether the 2016 judgment was binding, right?
4: Amongst other arguments. We still had arguments th- with respect to the statute of limitations, but obviously we couldn't brief FAPA in 2022 when FAPA right. didn't but, exist. But so, 20- the,
2: the, so the district court couldn't possibly have concluded that... The 2016 judgment didn't affect any of the arguments before her right because obviously that was the essence of the summary judgment briefing so it must be that she didn't think it affected the fapa question
4: well again we were we were arguing the summary judgment motions so if a party makes 10 motions and when it comes time to argue if i stand up at this podium and i only advance two or if when it comes time to briefing i only advance two and the court rests its decision I guess this court can interpret, I I believe Judge Donnelly's decision speaks for himself. Was
3: race judicata argued by your adversary in the district court? It was. It was argued? Yes.
4: All
0: right, so we'll hear from um, the state.
5: May it please the court. Mark Rube for the New York Attorney General. The Foreclosure Abuse Prevention Act is the latest of many responses by state and federal government to abuses by the mortgage lending industry arising from the mortgage foreclosure crisis. Mortgage lenders often rushed to court with inadequate documentation to support their foreclosure claims and then sought to unilaterally dismiss those faulty actions um, later to avoid the adverse judgment and to restart the statute of limitations procedural tactic uh, not afforded to any other civil litigant. As to borrow Judge Lyman's words, um, you typically get one shot and then it is over. But uh, after the New York Court of Appeals adopted a new rule approving that practice in Engel, the legislature quickly enacted FAPA to clarify that such unilateral discontinuances standing alone do not reset the statute of limitations. The legislature found that the Engel rule was inconsistent with legislative intent because it thwarted the long-recognized public interest furthered by the statute limitations, which are vital to the public welfare, providing security and stability for human affairs. As I understand it um, from the response to the question about the contract clause argument, U.S. Bank contends that a mortgage entered into the day before FAPA went into effect. That would be December 29th, 2023, um, would not be subject to FAPA and that they could open and close the statute of limitations for the next 36 years, that is until 2059. The state of New York has a fundamental interest okay, in finality and repose. Okay, you're right that, that, that,
2: that, um, that uh, Mr. Broderick said that at one time, but then I said, well, the, to clarify what the language of Section 10 entails, and he agreed that His position was that what that language entails is that it applies to pending actions, which is a kind of retroactivity. So if it applies to a pending action, it means that if we have an action pending on the effective date of FAPA, then FAPA would apply even if the mortgage had been signed prior to the effective date. And so that means that if somebody does a voluntary discontinuance of that action, it would not deaccelerate the loan. That would have retroactive effect. But why does this language require you to conclude not only that it applies to pending actions, but also to a prior action that has been dismissed and everybody has moved on from it for a number of years, and you have to now reinterpret the effect of an earlier judgment that has been closed?
5: Your Honor, because we're talking about the current pending action. And just to make things crystal clear, we're talking about page 651 in the appendix. We're not arguing that the prior foreclosure action was not closed not trying to reopen the judgment. We're talking about U.S. Bank using the affirmation on page 65, 651 as a defense in this pending action. And that is exactly what Section 10 applies to. And if there are any well, no, doubt-
2: section 10, section 10 says that the action will take effect immediately and apply to pending actions. And Section 8 says the voluntary discontinuance shall not So it's retroactive insofar as it applies to all pending actions. And so then I apply section eight even to a pending action where the mortgage has been negotiated even before FAPA. And it means that there's a voluntary discontinuance, it doesn't have this effect. I don't see why that language requires me to then say that even a voluntary discontinuance that has occurred uh, 13 years ago um, is gonna have a different effect than, than the court understood at the time.
5: Well, well, first, I'm going to answer your question, but first I'll say that if there's any doubt the court should quest- certify the question to the New York that, Court of Appeals.
0: My, that, that is my question. I mean, there, to the extent that there's any disagreement, uh, the New York Court of Appeals could, with the help of the legislative um, enactment in the language, definitively answer some of these questions, correct?
5: That is correct. We, we think the answer is clear, and the appellate division, the first department in the Genovese case... Uh, gave thorough reasoning supporting our position. It would certainly be incongruous if the Second Circuit adopted a different interpretation than uh, the appellate division.
3: Oh, it would so, result in a flood of cases coming to, to us. Right, it well, would certainly court's encourage forum shopping. that the
2: appellate division has that, that one decision, but then the trial courts in New York are divided on this question. Right? It does seem like there's a debate in the New York State courts, right? Well, the trial courts have no precedential uh, effect. They don't have a precedential effect, in the, but the appellate division is only within... The second apartment, or whatever, and it does seem. Don't you think that the well, court, th- the court that decided Engel, might th- think differently than the appellate division? Like, I'm not sure. I'm uh, confident that the New York Court of Appeals is going to say that this applies uh, retroactively to the extent that. Uh, may- that you maybe, say that it, what- maybe in
3: fact, they would be particularly incented because having been scolded before, they. Well, maybe well, you could go either we, way. I'm just, not, we, I'm just saying we, I, don't,
2: I can't conclude that from the second
5: department. We, we could certainly welcome your certification if you have doubts. But it's not just, Genovese is from the first department, has thorough reasoning explained in the statutory construction. The second department. Well, the first department, um, it's
2: not about Section 8, right? I mean, I, I understand maybe that. It's they
5: about should, Section 10, which applies right. it, it to it the should
2: apply, You know, you'd think that it would apply to all provisions, but it's not, not necessarily, it might present different issues.
5: But Again, that, those arguments could be made to the New York Court of Appeals, and they will ultimately resolve that question, not this court. Um, but I also want to go back. The fr- Second Department has applied um, FAPA retroactively without much analysis, conclu- implicitly concluding that the text is clear. Um, I argued in a case in the Third Department on January 16th, Deutsche Bank v. Deluca. Um, decision is pending on that the, case, the, but the that. Third. Third, Third Department. That's correct. I'm not. I'm not aware of uh, any cases in the Fourth Department. Um, but th- this issue is percolating its way through New York courts. They've the Appellate Division. Presidential opinions have uh, uniformly agreed with our position, and um, the f- it is appropriate for the federal courts under principles of federalism uh, to give some deference and not to jump out ahead of with the New York that, court. Of that appeals. In your
0: you dispose of this appeal.
5: I understand that there's many other issues in this appeal, but uh, Judge uh, Donnelly uh, ruled on this issue and found it sufficient to dispose of it, and. Well,
2: what about this uh, question, so if there is in fact a state court judgment of foreclosure that U.S. Bank obtained, um, shouldn't the federal courts have to respect that judgment? Uh,
5: Yes, I I will say that uh, the way FAPA is phrased is that it applies to cases where judgments have not been enforced. Um, The typical way that this has been addressed is that um, uh, litigants with unenforced judgments have sought to vacate the judgments in the state Well, that actually means
2: that East Fork could go to the state court that issued the judgment of foreclosure and say you should reconsider because we should have the benefit of FAPA, right? But they certainly can do that. that. But until the state court changes its judgment, I mean, it's not an application of FAPA. This is just regular preclusion principles. Like, should the federal courts issue a judgment that, that nullifies an earlier issue judgment by another court between the same parties on the same issue? Uh, right, Assuming I, that
3: it's the same parties.
5: Right, in general, yes. I have to confess that as to the particular facts of this case, based on the footnote in the district court opinion, that this was not at issue. This was not something um, that was considered. If this court has sort of questions about this in terms so of the state initially,
0: law. Initially, based on your review, there was an argument made that was then, uh, in effect, waived.
5: Uh, The District Court footnote that uh, Your Honors have been talking about said that the parties agreed that that uh, proceeding had no effect.
0: So you you understand that there are a number of different issues and you're maybe in a difficult position, (laughs) (laughs) Um, sort of an interpleader position in one sense, uh, but you're here to defend uh, FAPA and defend the retroactive uh, nature of FAPA. Um,
5: And we don't take a position on than many
0: other non FAPA related. So, with arguments. respect to the uh, constitutionality of uh, under the contracts clause, could you just briefly address that?
5: Yes, I'd happy to talk about the contracts clause. I don't think there's any dispute that the plain text of the party's mortgage agreement does not contain any contractual provision governing either acceleration or resetting the statute of limitations. And it's been settled law for many years that if a party wants to reset the statute of limitations on mortgage foreclosure action there's a statutory mechanism for doing so. New York's general obligations law 17105. What the banks did here was
2: they
0: took a
5: chance. The position of the
2: New York Court of Appeals is that it was long and well established that even if you're not formally resetting the statute of limitations, if you you take some affirmative act to deaccelerate the loan you're just you're deaccelerating the loan, that has the, that has the consequence of resetting its actual limitations because it, it no longer accelerates the loan. But even apart from whether a voluntary discontinuance is an affirmative act, There's no dispute that there was some class of affirmative acts that a lender could take that would deaccelerate the loan, right?
5: Well, the only Court of Appeals decision that I understand um, being referred to is the Kilpatrick decision from 1905. And Kilpatrick, the very first sentence, I believe, is, this case presents a very narrow question. And what Kilpatrick concerned was a situation where um, there was a two-year mortgage loan and uh, there was... Uh, Four interest payments and what happened when the first interest payment was missed and the lender said I'm going to foreclose the borrower said okay I'm gonna get another loan I'm gonna repay you back in full then the lender changed their mind they're like no we're revoking our acceleration we want you to if you're gonna prepay you have to pay the $1,000 penalty and The borrower said, okay, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. I took out this other loan, and now I have to pay you the $1,000 penalty. Otherwise, I have these two loans. And so what the Court of Appeals said is that that $1,000 payment was under duress, that the lender could not revoke when um, the borrower had relied on... The, um, acceleration. So that was a narrow question that was decided in Kilpatrick. And how we get from that to a century-old uh, legal so tradition, so your, your I don't is it's
2: know. It's not just that the New York Court of Appeals decided Engel and Engel was a dramatic change in the law, but the New York Court of Appeals just had no understanding of the whole history of New York law in this area. No. The, the, the idea that an affirmative act... Does by the lender deaccelerate the loan? Is just a made up thing? That no, the Engel, in Engel.
5: No, the Engel said that the no clear rule had developed as to the effect of unilateral well, what, discontinuity. What, what
2: Engel says is that it's well established that an affirmative act by the lender to deaccelerate the loan would deaccelerate the loan, and the question that it considered open was whether voluntary discontinuance of a foreclosure action was such an affirmative act. You're saying even the idea that an affirmative act would deaccelerate the loan was not actually established. Is that your position? In Court of
5: Appeals precedent, there was appellate division precedent that held that a clear and unambiguous act and how unilateral discontinuance could be considered a clear and unambiguous revocation, I don't understand. But but,
2: but, 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 FAPA doesn't apply just to voluntary discontinuance of a foreclosure action, it applies to any unilateral act by the lender.
4: Right, but that's... So
2: so if it had been well established that there was some class of affirmative acts by the lender that could deaccelerate a loan, and after FAPA that no longer exists, doesn't that change the rights of the... The, the way how the, lender under, the parties understood the rights to be allocated when they negotiated and signed the mortgage?
5: Well, I'm going to answer your question, but first I'd like to note that there are hundreds of these FAPA cases, or as applied challenges, whatever hypotheticals your honor can imagine, there's a case where that issue can be resolved and there's no need to reach out in this case to resolve hypotheticals that are not presented. Um, but turning to your hypothetical about some other class of uh, revocation um, as to whether there is um, an implied, I think what Your Honor is getting at is whether there's an implied term in the contract and how a term can be implied based on a common law rule um, adopted by the appellate division that could always be reversed by the Court of Appeals that is not even binding on this Court. As Your Honor has noted, the appellate division precedent does not, Prevent uh, this court from reaching a contrary conclusion. So how there could be an implied contractual I term mean, or on. vested right I mean, based I mean, on some
2: parties negotiate against the backdrop of what what's going to be enforced legally. They like apply the law, they choose laws to apply, and so on. I mean I guess it's true that in any case uh, the New York Court of Appeals can decide you know we're just going to change the law really dramatically. But it doesn't like if the parties chose. Uh, New York law, you wouldn't decline to apply New York law to the contract on the ground that, well, tomorrow the New York Court of Appeals could decide that New Jersey law applies throughout New York State. Just because they have the ability to do that doesn't mean that it's not a term of the contract that we should, that, that they understood the substantive provisions of New York law to govern the terms. Right?
5: Well, Go ahead. So I think what the Supreme Court said in General Motors Corp was that um, litigants took their chances with their interpretation of the law and having come out on the right, wrong side of it and having lost a political skirmish in the legislature, that does not give rise to a constitutional cause of action or a vested right. Um, can I,
3: can I um, understand a little bit better the effect of, of FAPA, let's say today, if somebody um, misses a, a, a payment, a, Foreclosure co- action is, um, is 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 brought um, in that instance, um, and let's let's assume further that the um, lender then decides to voluntarily discontinue. The borrower um, misses a, a payment in in the future. The borrower, the lender, still can sue the the borrower on that for missing that payment, right? It's just uh, subject to the six-year statute of limitations? Th-
5: that's that's correct, Your Honor. Um, it's subject to the six-year statute of limitations. The, the But I th- I think the point is once the loan has been accelerated, the full balance is due, and unless there is a valid deacceleration pursuant to general obligations, Law 17105, there are no future payments because the balance is already due. Got
3: it. Okay, okay. So, 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 so let me, let me just... Um, uh, finish on 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 that um, it 's discontinued um, can the borrower then um, let 's say again this happened that FAPA has passed the day after a voluntary uh, discontinuance can the uh, lender then bring a new lawsuit um, based upon the same facts uh that that sort of turns on um uh
5: There's a provision in the CPLR, the 203A, that's also implicated in some other FAPA cases that can even extend the statute of limitations uh, six months. So if if an action is discontinued and there's a laundry list of reasons why, um, you have six months to go back to court, even if the statute of limitations has expired. And that goes back to the old... So
3: let's assume the statute of limitations has not expired. Can the borrower then still bring... Uh, a lawsuit based upon that same mispayment? Missed, missed, missed uh, that's yeah. correct, because there
5: wouldn't be any res judicata um, effect, I understand, from the dismissal. But if,
3: if it was dismissed on the merits... Um, uh, no, I'm just asking yeah. the voluntary dis- discontinuance. And so in that instance, the borrower effectively, the, the effect of FAPA is effectively to shorten the statute of, of limitations. Um, in terms of the borrower being able to, to bring a, a claim. Is that, is that
5: fair uh, or, or not? I, I mean, it, it has an effect on the statute of limitations. The statute of limitations remains um, it's a six class, year and it's, an it's what, a clarifying effect. It's a clarifying effect, yes, That's on the when the accrual the occurs.
2: What it does is it denies the uh, lender the ability to unilaterally accelerate the loan, right?
4: Um, I, it, it,
3: like the reason the
5: statute of no, limitations you know, kicks in is because the loan
2: has been accelerated and they don't have the ability to de
5: It has nothing to do with their ability to deaccelerate. it has to do with the effect of a purported deacceleration on the statute of limitations. And as I discussed with the Copatra case, there are independent reasons why a borrower might want to stand on an acceleration. So um, we were, a lot of this argument is conflating statute of limitations and acceleration, but they're distinct um, right, concepts. So the, the
2: New York Court of Appeals didn't think they were distinct, but FAPA, I guess, makes them distinct. So your position is that now the lender can deaccelerate the loan, but the statute of limitations would still kick in from the time it commits for right. the foreclosure action.
5: I, I want to what, clarify one thing about Engel, which I, I would direct I the answer, court to answer okay.
0: that, that question.
5: Okay, I'm I'm sorry. So
2: your position is after FAPA, the lender can unilaterally deaccelerate the loan, but the statute of limitations would still kick in from the date that it commenced the foreclosure action. So the effect of FAPA is to decouple acceleration from the statute of limitations, is that?
5: Uh, That that assumes that they were coupled, but um, it does clarify that they are distinct. Certainly the
2: baseline, at least as of Engel, was that they were coupled, right?
5: Um, Not from the Patrick. A decision which had nothing to do with the statute of limitations um, there was appellate division precedent to that effect yes but that just
0: a, really just a clarification as i understand it that um uh governing when the parties can cancel or reset the statute of limitations
5: that is correct that is correct and i would just emphasize that uh, the clarification point goes to uh, the statutory interpretation question. It's not even necessary to dispose of the constitutional arguments. I, I didn't even talk much about it, but I think it's apparent that there was a reasonable purpose, even if it impaired a contractual right, a reasonable purpose related to a legitimate and important Statute. public interest. Oh, yeah, it supposed to be
3: a reasonable way of uh, achieving
2: that
5: That's right, but um, for terms of reasonable ways, the courts do not second-guess the judgment of the people's elected representatives. Well,
2: we don't second-guess them on the question of whether, well, actually, I I don't know, maybe we do to some extent, because you have to decide whether there is a legitimate and important interest and so on. But assuming there is, we do always address questions of whether it's tailored to that interest and whether you're pursuing it or not. Being overly broad, or right? Like, we do entertain those kinds of questions. So, my question is this so, if you could achieve the purpose given what I was describing as one option for retroactivity, which is that it applies to pending cases but not to prior cases, why is it reasonable to also reach the class of cases where it will be a surprise to the parties that actually the borrower now owns the place free and clear because everybody thought that? The loan had been be deaccelerated and that had the effect of extending the statute of limitations.
5: Well, we dispute that there's any surprise, but to I mean, answer your no, question. There's
2: no people in that category. I mean, even when we have the cases that go either way in the, in the trial courts of New York State, it means that there are some cases where courts actually got involved and said, no, the loan was deaccelerated by the unilateral action of the lender, and that has the effect of the central limitations there is some class of cases where everybody understood that to be what happened in their case
5: well Engel- it happened more than
2: six years ago now those expectations are unsettled because now the borrower just owns the thing free and clear and there's no way to foreclose.
5: well Engel said that no clear rule had developed so particularly at the time your honor is talking about there was not a clear rule but also to explain Go to the remedial purpose of the legislation. Again, this arose from the mortgage foreclosure crisis. This case, we're talking about a default in 2010, 2009. That's not unusual. That's when a lot of these cases are from. And the banks filed an action. They had shoddy paperwork, knew that they would get a bad judgment, withdrew it. We'll file it again. They file it again. They withdrew it again. at some point there has to be finality and repose.
0: That also undermines these accrual, principles relating to accrual, right?
5: That is correct. there's plainly a reasonable response to a legitimate and public important yeah, but nobody interest. Not, nobody
2: denies that it would that's now the rule in New York State. The only question is whether you can go back in time and change the effect of a voluntary discontinuance that happened in the past.
5: And well I'm explaining that the statute should be interpreted and was meant that way because the remedial okay, purpose I I, arises I I that, from these yeah, classes of I have cases. That argument.
2: I guess I just wanted to ask one more thing, which is you said a moment ago that given all these hypotheticals, if there are problems about impairing certain contracts and certain scenarios, there will be other cases where those scenarios are presented. Is that the way we should think about a contracts clause claim? Is it always as applied to a particular contract? Or because the question is whether the state has acted reasonably in impairing an obligation of contracts, we should think about all the implications of the rule the state has imposed.
5: Well, well I think it's somewhere in the middle because... There's a certain, there's classes of cases, but FAPA also has many provisions that are not at issue here. So there's the Engel cases, there's the 203A, the Savings Clause cases. FAPA has um, effect on a few different provisions. So it should certainly be limited, the analysis is limited to an Engel um, type case. So is it,
2: would it be possible then that uh, Section 8 applies retroactively, but maybe Section 4 does not? Like, is that a possible outcome, do you think?
5: Well, I, I don't think... I mean, it's not your
2: position, but you're saying... Right. right. We, eight, We shouldn't think about the other provisions of FAPA applying retroactively, because maybe you should go provision by provision. Is that is that how you think we should think about...
5: Well, I think 8 and 4 go together. 8 and 4, four is harmonizing changes in the CPLR to reflect um section eight so i think section eight, four, eight, and 10 um go together thank
0: you thank you thank very you. much we've kept you well past your time but thank you for your patience um and you've re- had some time for a rebuttal yep, very briefly, thank you thank you
1: on that last point about whether or not certain provisions within fapa can be interpreted differently with respect to retro- uh, retroactivity Uh, The New York Court of Appeals in the Virginia Metropolitan case examined that exact issue. They looked at different provisions and said, look.
0: Would you agree that if there's some disagreement or some ambiguity about all this certification as to this issue would be appropriate?
1: uh, We would agree. The issue of retroactivity. uh, I I would say that the Court of Appeals is going to speak to this issue sooner or later. Correct. Um, Yeah. Okay. So that's for sure.
0: And. Um, by the way, uh, and I think that the state was not really in a position understandably to uh, respond fully to this. There are other issues, but um, why isn't this at some level? I understand you've got these constitutional issues um, uh, that, that may not be disposed of. But usually when we certify, we tell the um, New York Court of Appeals this will help us determine one way or the other. This will be dispositive. Uh, and with respect to what's before us, which is the district court's judgment, isn't this at some level, um, this question of retroactivity, at some level, a question that could help us determine whether to affirm or to vacate?
1: Yeah, I think it could, okay. for sure.
3: Well, thank you very much. Thank you. For your decision.